you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. From the Munn Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On today's show, will the massive South by Southwest Festival go on as planned, or will it fall victim to pandemic fears? Then, in the new movie Greed, Steve Coogan plays a billionaire one-percenter. Also featured in this satire about economic inequality, real Syrian refugees. If you want to persuade people to question their beliefs or maybe question something they thought to be true, uh, you either make them laugh or you make them cry. If you do one of those two things, you're halfway to uh, making them think twice. And with the band Kiss on its final tour, a lifelong fan says farewell. That's today in The Frame. We'll be right back. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Welcome to The Frame. I'm John Horn. Every year, a few hundred thousand people gather in Austin, Texas for South by Southwest. It's an international festival of music, film, and technology. But with the threat of the coronavirus at hand, some people are saying that bringing massive crowds into one place could be a very bad idea. Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, and a few other tech and media companies already have dropped out of the festival, which starts on March 13th. South by Southwest organizers say they're nevertheless moving ahead. Dan Solomon is a writer for Texas Monthly, and he joins us from Austin. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the impact of the coronavirus, let's talk a little bit about just how big South by Southwest is in terms of its physical presence in Austin. How much are people's lives affected when the festival comes to town? Well, it's huge. It takes over a giant chunk of the city, several miles, especially the downtown area. But also beyond that, it does have a huge impact. Let's talk about some health concerns from people who live in Austin. An online petition calling for a total cancellation of South by Southwest has more than 40,000 signatures. I have been to South by Southwest. It's been a number of years, but like any popular gathering, there are a lot of people in a lot of lines. It can be getting into a movie, it can be getting into a club, getting into a restaurant. You are very much cheek to jowl with a lot of your fellow festival guests. And I guess that's something that a lot of people might be concerned about. It's not just that you're inside a venue with a lot of people, but there are massive crowds basically wherever you go on all the streets and in a lot of public spaces. Yeah, that is a a very real part of the concern, is that it's just going to put a lot of people in close quarters. The festival did talk today about potentially encouraging people to be further physically apart from each other, whether that means capping the capacity at venues or instituting a a standing-in-line protocol. I don't know specifically, but it's something that they seem to be aware of. The head of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, was scheduled to speak, but he's since canceled because of the company's concerns about the coronavirus. In fact, Twitter said in a statement that it was canceling all, quote, non-critical business travel and events, unquote. Who else has bowed out so far? 
Uh, we've seen Twitter, Facebook, Amazon, Amazon Entertainment, Amazon's uh, studios went out today. TikTok went out today. Um, Mashable, which usually has a, a pretty sizable South by Southwest presence, uh, canceled yesterday. There's probably more, too. We're talking with Texas Monthly writer Dan Solomon about South by Southwest and concerns over the coronavirus. I want to talk a little bit about the economic impact of South by Southwest. Obviously, there are a lot of hotels and restaurants that benefit, but it seems from your own reporting, there are a lot of smaller businesses that really rely on South by Southwest. And if the festival didn't happen, they'd be in a big amount of trouble. Yeah, that's absolutely true. One thing that it's kind of hard to break apart is South by Southwest's rise with the rise of Austin. Austin is a city that is rapidly growing in population, and that growth has coincided with the rise of South by Southwest. And so you've seen a lot of people and a lot of businesses that factor South by Southwest heavily into their business models. So you've got caterers who opened up operations because they knew that every March they could pay a third of their monthly bills off of one week. I you know, talked to all sorts of people who have jobs that you wouldn't think of as a South by Southwest thing, you know, carpenters and uh, pedicab drivers and people who rent porta-potties. And all of those people really do count on South by Southwest as a huge part of their annual income. I think it's also important to note that South by Southwest can be an important launching point for musical acts and for movies. Right now, I think there's about 100 world premiere films, including new movies from Judd Apatow. There's a documentary about the Beastie Boys, a new King Arthur movie with Dev Patel. I'm wondering in terms of its impact in the conversation about art and artists, how important would you say South by Southwest has become? It's huge. I mean, especially the film festival has been growing every year. And people like Judd Apatow, like if he can't premiere his movie at South by Southwest, any other film festival in the world would be happy to have him. But there are a lot of people who get a benefit from small filmmakers, independent filmmakers, short filmmakers, who get a benefit from premiering their film at the same festival as Judd Apatow and at a festival with the prestige of South by Southwest. And that would be, it'd be really difficult for people who are counting on that premiere to make connections and to launch their careers to lose it. As far as musicians go, the festival itself doesn't pay very well, but there are all of these events historically that happen around the festival, often paid for by companies like Amazon and Facebook and Twitter, who get pretty good paychecks. And you know, you'll see bands who route their entire tours around going to South by Southwest, so they can play 14 shows in Austin that week, um, including an official showcase. And without that economy happening, it really does have a huge disruptive effect on a lot of the art and creativity that's at the core of the festival. The organizers of MIP TV, which was set for later this month in France, just canceled that annual television convention. I'm wondering if you have any idea of what the organizers of South by Southwest are trying to wrestle with now. What is the balance they're trying to strike? I mean, I think that they do have a real concern. Certainly the city of Austin has a real concern. If it makes more sense to have everything under the control of South by Southwest, which can at least institute you know, hand-washing protocols and uh, recommended safe distances and you know, have some authority over the people who, who come to town for the festival versus just having sort of a chaos festival. Because all of those bands who booked their tours to Austin – you know, most of them are hand-to-mouth sorts of musicians who can't afford to cancel a tour. They already took time off of work. 
So they're going to be coming anyway. You know, people who aren't traveling on badges, people who are just coming to South by Southwest to have a good time, a lot of them are still going to come. So I think that a big part of the concern right now is, is it more useful for South by Southwest to continue and to have control over what happens in Austin? Or is it more useful to just say, everybody stay home, this isn't a safe place to be? And I think that they're legitimately struggling with that. And then I'm sure they're also struggling with some very real you know, financial considerations. It will be hard to rebound from canceling something that they've worked on all year. I think that there's a real resistance to that just because this is all they do. South by Southwest isn't a project of another organization. They put on this festival for 10 days in March and having to cancel it just days before it's supposed to begin. It's supposed to start a week from Friday. I, I think that's something that they're just resistant to do because they've been working on it for a year. Dan Solomon is a writer for Texas Monthly. He joined us from Austin. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And in other coronavirus news in Hollywood, MGM is delaying the release of its next James Bond film called No Time to Die. The movie had been scheduled to open internationally on April 2nd and be released in the United States on April 10th. It is now being moved to November. Coming up next on The Frame, actor Steve Coogan and his new film, Greed. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And it's food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about LA. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. Lately, when Steve Coogan has shown up in movies directed by Michael Winterbottom, he's traveling around Europe with Rob Brydon. But Greed, the latest movie starring Coogan and directed by Winterbottom, is a lot different from the trip movies. It's a satire about a billionaire fashion mogul who exploits garment workers in Asia, avoids taxes in the UK, lines his family's pockets, and yet still feels he doesn't have enough. In this scene, Coogan's character's mother and his ex-wife have just arrived on the Greek island where he's throwing himself an over-the-top birthday party. If you look at the Kardashians, Kylie Jenner's got over a billion Instagram followers. She's on the cover of Forbes. Well, then she must be a very good person, basically. She's richer than you, sweetie. And she's That's not true, is it? Yes, it is. It's actually that true. That can't be true. She's richer than you. Steve Coogan has a unique ability to make otherwise odious characters appear funny, but in Greed, the humor is there to serve a larger purpose. This particular film, Michael wanted to say something about inequality um, and the, the sort of the emergence of these new billionaire class, which has emerged over the last 20, 30 years, and seems to have escaped uh, scrutiny somehow. Um, and the film uh, is an attempt to sort of shine a light on that the huge gap between the rich and the poor um, in a way, by making something that's entertaining and it turns funny and strange and interesting um, without it seeming too sanctimonious. Do you think that's something that narrative film can do in a different way than documentary? Not better, but in a different way, because the film ends with some cards about inequality and about pay conditions in sweatshops that you would see typically at the end of a nonfiction film. I think what a narrative can do is 
tell a story, tell a human story. You know, uh, we have documentaries and we, we, we have uh, news reports and good journalism um, that report facts. And, and most people, uh, many people make, make judgments based on the facts that they uh, accumulate. But many people don't. And they're fixed with a prejudice. And it doesn't matter how many facts and figures and statistics you present them to, to support your argument. If they've got a fixed uh, prejudice, they'll stick with it. And the good thing about uh, narrative is you tell a story. And if you tell a story and you entertain people or make them laugh or touch them or engage them on a human level, then I think you're more likely to make them think about the sort of the, the subtext of the film. When you and Michael were talking about playing this character, how did you go about figuring out what he sounded like, what he looked like, how big his teeth were. What were the components of putting this character together? Um, well, you know, he's got I mean, big teeth. He's got very big teeth, and they're very, very white. Even even by uh, Los Angeles standards, uh, they are very white. Um, so we wanted to make him. In some ways, that the film is is funny. It's a satire on the super wealthy. But um, in actual fact, the sort of super white teeth and the sort of all year round perma tan and uh, sort of blow dried hair. It might seem exaggerated. It's not really exaggerated at all. In fact, the, the behavior of the character, because he's pretty obnoxious and uh, unapologetic and flamboyant and uh, and crude, um, his his behavior is really n no exaggeration at all. There are many successful people who have a bombastic nature. So um, we didn't really, we don't, even though it's a satire, we don't, don't feel we we're really exaggerating anything. But 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 there's a lot there's a lot to go and there's lots of billionaires that you can draw upon. And many of them are quite charismatic, even if they are, if they, even if they can be quite didactic and sometimes bullying. The character that you play in this film is having an elaborate birthday party. There's even a subplot that involves some refugees who are camped on the beach that might ruin the backdrop for the birthday party. Who are they? They they're camping. What was it? Duke of Edinburgh, Syrian refugees. Poor things. Well, come along, why? They won't mind going a bit further. Get rid of them. Rich. What? The refugees. They, they can find refuge somewhere that isn't smack bang in the middle of our f***ing view. It's a public beach. In Greece, all beaches are public. It's not me. He's my guests. Some of them are very superficial. And he's not joking. No, he's not joking, but he sort of says it in quite a sort of an acerbic way. And um, the refugees, actually, by the way, uh, were real refugees uh, who played themselves, the Syrian refugees who ended up in uh, the Greek islands having escaped from Syria. And, um, uh, yeah, so Michael wants to introduce the idea of the refugees because there's, an, there's another group of people who we, we try to not, we don't like to think about. You know, we, we go on holiday to these wonderful resorts, you know, people go on holiday to the Greek islands, and uh, they know that on the island next door is there are you know, tens of thousands of uh, refugees that are stuck there and are sort of living in limbo. Um, when we were making this movie, we spent one week in uh, Monaco on super yachts that cost $150,000 a day to rent. The next week we're in Sri Lanka in garment factories where they're paid four, five dollars a day. Um, sometimes Bangladesh even less, three dollars fifty a day. And the the uh, there's a direct relationship uh, between the super rich and the super poor, and it's something that people don't like to draw attention to. Certainly, the, the the super rich don't, and they are often the people who control the means of communication. But uh, it, really, what we're doing is you don't often see those two worlds, the world uh, world of the sort of disempowered, dispossessed, in the same film as you see sort of glamour and, uh, and and sort of ostentatious displays of wealth. So we wanted to put the two in within the same film and, and bang them up against each other to, to make it sort of, to sort of crystallise what the, the problem is. 
how do you get the refugees and the people working those sweatshops to participate and not exploit them as they've been exploited in the past? Well, uh, those who were engaged in the crew and the ones who who were in the scenes uh, were paid the same as any professional person would be paid. And uh, of course, the, in the gar- in the garment factory and in the um, uh, in, in the garment factory, there's hundreds of people, and effectively, we're making a documentary there because we're pointing a camera. So, and they're, they're they're being paid for what they do. What what we did do though is make a contribution to. Uh, their sort of their union, their pressure group, who try to improve the living standards for the wages of people who work in those places. So, um, so we made sure that we um, you know, did something constructive. We're talking with Steve Coogan about his new film Greed. I want to ask you a little bit more about the style of comedy in the film. How would you explain the way that you approach comedy? Um, well, we we have we use a little bit of improvisation. I did a series of movies with Michael called The Trip. Um, that we did, there's a fourth film coming out called The Trip to Greece. Um, we did the trip to Spain, trip to Italy, and, and uh, so on. Um, within those films, we do a lot of Im- improvisation. And in this uh, film, in Greed, it's more heavily scripted. But the 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 humour isn't um, it's sort of contrived uh, sort of comic conceits that you might get in a broad comedy. Michael likes things to be sort of have uh, an authenticity to them. So any humour that comes out is sort of comes out of the character, comes out of the social situation. And uh, sometimes that means it's funny, and sometimes it means it's quite uh, serious. And the movie actually takes a very dark turn uh, in the, the final act. But um, comedy is very useful when you're trying to tell a story because if you're trying to talk about something that you think is important, no one wants to have a lecture. But they, they if they laugh, then they'll kind of relax a little, and they, they'll be more open to what you've got to say. I, mean, I think I would say that if you if you want to persuade people of to question their beliefs or maybe question something they thought to be true, uh, you either make them laugh or you make them cry. If you do one of those two things, you, you're halfway to uh, making them think twice. There was an early version of this film where Michael Winterbottom, at the film's conclusion, had cards that represented the net worth of a couple of fashion uh, fashion moguls, H&M owner Stefan Pearson, worth $18.3 billion, and Zara owner Amancio Ortega, who's worth $70 billion. Those are no longer on the film because Sony Pictures said, we don't want that. I've said it, so there that mm-hmm. that those numbers <laughs> well, are out there. Michael would be pleased, <laughs> the, probably the director. Yeah, and maybe these guys would be pleased. Is that a little bit frustrating that what was important to Michael doesn't get to be in the finished film? A little bit, yeah. And he sort of he uh, he got that he got that off his chest uh, uh, in earlier interviews. Um, but um, you know, I, I have some sympathy with Sony. But what we, what Michael wanted on the end credits was nothing that w- it wasn't in the public domain. It wasn't any great revelation. He was just elevating the information. So uh, I, I can understand why he's so frustrated when they sort of uh, uh, don't want to shine a light too specifically on on people. But there's no, there's absolutely nothing. There's no there's nothing litigious about it. Nothing slanderous. I mean, the important thing about the film is that it's about it's about a system which is broken you know 40 years ago we had this uh, huge ex- new experiment with free market economics and when thatcher and reagan endorsed it and, and 40 years later we were told at the time that trickle-down economics would benefit everyone and um, there's a lot of people now standing around saying well hang on this has been going on 40 years where's the trickle-down effect i'm curious how much you knew about this inequality issue before making the film and in making it did it change your behavior because i have to say after i watched the film i 
went and started looking at the tags on my clothes to see where they were made and if they were made in Bangladesh or Sri Lanka or places that have historically bad records of sweatshop conditions. Uh, Yes, it did. And of course, uh, people who have the sort of economic means to make choices where they buy clothes that might be slightly more expensive but are made more ethically, that's of course something they can do. Um, But uh, we're not even really pointing the finger at consumers for making these choices because almost every store uh, operates in this way. What we're trying to do is say, uh, have a conversation where we try and uh, change the system and and also put it on the agenda in in some way. I think it is starting to be spoken about more. You know, many things that weren't on the agenda, I'd say, 20, 30 years ago, like gender politics, uh, diversity, the environment, these uh, subjects that weren't really discussed are now front and centre on the news agenda. Um, but something that's, uh, that, uh, until quite recently, has escaped scrutiny is this huge disparity between the rich and the poor. Uh, but I think it is starting to be talked about more, and it feels like the time is ripe, especially in, the, in America at the moment, the election. is something that is starting to be spoken about, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. Steve Coogan's new movie is called Greed. It's in theaters now. Steve, thanks so much for coming in. Pleasure. Coming up on The Frame, Kiss is on its farewell tour, and super fans reveal the deep emotional ties to the band that transcend makeup and big hair. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. Fans of hard rock and heavy metal aren't well known for exploring their inner emotions. But now that the rock pioneers Kiss are on their goodbye tour, fans are sharing their feelings. The Frame contributor Paul Ratliff, himself a lifelong fan, wanted to tell their story, a story of a bomb that goes beyond the band's makeup and theatrics. So it's 1978. I am seven years old. And I'm sitting in a giant walk-in closet in my best friend Robbie's bedroom. The closet is lit by a string of Christmas lights. He puts a needle on a record, hands me an album cover, and I hear this. Robbie points to an illustration on the album cover and tells me that a demon is singing. In that moment, I experience a kind of imprinting. Kiss instantly becomes my first favorite band, and right there, yes, in a closet, I become a lifelong member of the Kiss Army. The hottest band in the world, Kiss! In 1978, Kiss are the biggest band in the world. It's an era that diehards refer to as Super Kiss. There were books, magazines, a TV movie, and a merchandising campaign the likes of which the industry had never seen. Introducing Kiss Your Face Makeup, just like the makeup worn by Gene, Paul, Peter... In the 80s, as I struggled into my teenage years, Kiss struggled to compete with the hair metal bands of that era. In an act of self-preservation and maybe the most exciting event of my childhood, Kiss 
surrendered their makeup and were reborn as actual human beings. Exclusively here on MTV this evening, we are going to see Kiss without their makeup for the very first time. What emerged was a different kind of Kiss. This Kiss championed the underdog. They were anti-authoritarian and they were all about self-empowerment. This is the Kiss I loved the most. As a gay kid growing up in a tiny desert military town with a homophobic father in the Reagan era, I needed this version of Kiss. And while my father was policing my clothes and my hair, Kiss was sending me a completely different set of messages. When KISS announced they were going on their last tour ever, I had a surprisingly strong emotional response, and I started to notice that other fans were having similar experiences. So I wanted to talk to them, and I knew just the place to go. Vegas. Right now, we are standing here in our Love It Loud Rock and Roll Wedding Chapel. So it's our KISS Wedding Chapel. It's all themed out for rock and roll. Michelle Vermillion is general manager of what's essentially a giant KISS refuge inside the Rio Hotel in Vegas, where they have KISS-themed weddings and glow-in-the-dark mini-golf. uh, We also, in our venue, have the largest public collection of KISS memorabilia. So it's almost like a mini-museum right inside of our venue um, with Tons and tons of items that KISS fans love to check out. And Uh, some of those fans become employees. Wyatt Allison, who is 21 years old, discovered KISS in a video game when he was eight. They're the most realist form of superhero that you can ask for. You know, you you have Spider-Man and you have Hulk and and all, which is cool and all. No one does it the way KISS does it. You know, Gene Simmons spitting blood and Paul Stanley flying to the middle of the crowd to greet his fans. It, It just never gets old for a KISS fan. I'm the product of a bloody divorce from my parents, so I buried myself in my room and I had a lot of... Glenn Rhodes is a former employee who has followed the band for over 40 years. They were my family. My family was fighting each other and I was in my room listening to Kiss and that's... They got me through. Back in the chapel, Lucy Veltry, a makeup artist, is helping a bride get ready. Right now, I am putting on a base coat of white... And I do that with a sponge because that kind of gives it the airbrush look instead of having kind of like brush stroke streaks. Dusty is marrying her boyfriend, Tennessee, after 20 years together. She will have Paul Stanley's makeup, white face, black star over her right eye. What inspired you to have a kiss-themed wedding? Our daughter has autism and she has a huge attraction to KISS and she wanted to have something fun and we wanted to do something fun for her. So that's why. When you have that, she's come through so much. The fact that she's out here moving around and, you know, it's all about uh, my kid. She deserves as much life as anyone else. But yeah, Lene. Hi. So you're a big KISS fan? Yes, sir. What What is it that you like about KISS? The music. A lot of people with autism aren't even vocal, but you can put music in their life, and it opens up every pore of their being. That is why we're doing this today. And You're going to mess up your makeup. Don't cry. Don't cry. <laughs> For The Frame, I'm Paul Ratliff. You are not alone. 
Kiss End of the Road Tour is at Staples Center tonight. Don't forget to rock and roll all night. And as I thought the lyric actually went, part of every day. And that'll do it for today. I'm John Horn. Thanks for listening. We're back here tomorrow at the Moan Broadcast Center. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.